Thank you, Katie and Katie listeners, for joining me on the Meet in the Middle show, where we share dialogue on complex issues with local thought leaders with differing opinions. The hope is for listeners to gain new perspective and empower freedom of expression. I'm Dan Richardson, and today's topic is freedom, sustainability, identity, and civility through the eyes of a thoughtful high school student. My guest today is Gus Richardson. No relation. Gus, welcome. Thank you for having me, Dan. Gus is currently a junior at Roaring Fork High School. Gus also wrote a, wrote a thoughtful guest column in the September 27th edition of the Soper Sun that I thought was insightful because I learned something new. I thought it was thoughtful because Gus made the effort to really explore the circumstances of an issue. I thought it was courageous because he was willing to voice an opinion in a community newspaper and inspiring because of all the things I just listed. The be, this behavior is exactly what I hope to illuminate and model on this show. So Gus, thank you for being willing to model respectful freedom of expression that I believe is vital to the success of our country. Thank you. Um, okay, Gus, when you and I spoke, uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, you mentioned a few topics that, um, uh, or we, you know, we agreed on a couple topics that we thought we would discuss. And after thinking about it for a while, I took the liberty of categorizing them into, uh, as the show uh, title alludes to, freedom, sustainability, identity, and civility. And the first topic involved the recent frenzy of book banning that uh, is on the radio waves and, and in print all over the place. And you felt strongly enough about it to write a guest column in the Soper Sun. So would you mind sharing with our listeners the context of your column and why you chose to wrote the column, write the column? Yeah, sure. Okay, so at our local Garfield County Libraries, there is a current like opposition movement towards this these two mangas they're called um if i remember correctly prison school and oh man i'm blanking on the other one's name right now but they both um have some questionably sexual content like a little bit of uh elements of bdsm culture and it's a it is pedophilia is a lot of what parts of these books are about okay and the Opposition was coming from the fact that certain parties were claiming that these books were being marketed towards children, being put into the child section, being marketed as this child pornography. And through my listening to both sides and through my writing of my piece, I learned that that was not the case at all. Mm. These books are not meant for young children in the way that the opposition was saying that they were. Okay. And was that something that that just really struck a chord with you, or was it something that you were paying attention to, and therefore this just sort of tipped the scales, and you said, I want my voice to be heard? I hadn't heard much, much like, information. I mean, I've always been an opponent of book banning, but I haven't heard much information about this, but, like, only a couple weeks before it happened. So it was really, like... I decided once I heard that this was happening that I really wanted to at least observe what was going on in the community 
and maybe write a piece about it if the opportunity presented itself. Okay. Um, and I, I'm sorry if I've missed any, but have you ever written a guest column before about any other topic? No, this is my first opinion piece. Okay. And what did you think about um, crafting it and seeing it in print? And did anybody comment on it? Um, as you may know, we got a very nice uh, letter to the editor about it um, mm-hmm. just a week or two ago that was um, also published in Aspen Daily, I think. Um, and that was really great to like have as feedback because it felt like I had really affected somebody. And um, yeah, I really liked writing an opinion piece. Uh, I've never been able to share my <laughs> opinion, I guess, awesome. in such a capacity. Awesome. Well, as I mentioned in the introduction, I find it really inspiring that uh, um, someone of your age um, would take the take the time to write that. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, well, let's get into the content of that and and the and your reasoning behind it. So what's what's wrong with banning books and and uh, and restricting access? What's your beef with that? Well, like I said in my column, when we ban books, we really ban information. We ban experiences. We ban what we can learn from other people's lives and apply them to our own. And I think that that is really bad for like a modern day culture that wants to, I don't know, stay in the modern day. Books allow us to have a lot of empathy and understanding of other situations. And I think that when we ban books, we tell people that that empathy and shared emotions that we feel with authors and characters and stories is wrong. And I think that that's wrong for our functioning society. Mm -hmm. Is there a line where, well, actually, let me, let me phrase that a little differently. Um, Because I think a nuance in this issue is, is the government banning the book, or in this case, um, it would be Garfield County who oversees the libraries. Or is the library preventing um, its uh, its uh, its readers from seeing it? So how do you how do you differentiate between where a library should draw that line of what it puts on the shelves versus the government dictating what's allowed or not allowed? Well, personally, I don't believe a government should ever decide what can be available to its public. Okay. Um, there's points when I think it's okay for the library to do because, you know, they're running a business in ways. And if they truly deem something is, I don't know, not something that they want to have in the library, there's nothing wrong with them taking it out of their library. What's wrong is when we start saying that no libraries can carry that and you can't access it on the internet. That's when the problem occurs, if that is sufficient. Yeah. Well, just to dig in, because that's what we do on the show. (laughs) What I'm hearing you say is there's really nothing that a government should ban, like, say, the publication of a book. Yeah. Okay. And does that include, I think it's useful to, to... talk about sort of freedom of speech here and um you know if it involved if a book involved hate speech and wrongful information um uh is it right for the government to pull that pull that and say no that's just factually wrong well no not really because these works need to be available to everyone. And even if it's like some book written by a bigot who's Mm. filled his book up with hate speech and misinformation, it's 
honestly un-American to not allow that book to be available to people. And I, I don't know, I believe that people are smart enough to make their own decisions. And I think if we don't have those pieces of media that are informing our decisions, it's really difficult to develop our own opinions. Okay. So what about in this instance, you, you mentioned, and I, I haven't looked at any of the books that um, we're speaking to. Um, what do you think is the right thing for the library to do for this book, say, that you know has is in uh, reference to pedophilia? What, what, what's the right approach for them? I think the right approach for them is to, you know, stay stalwart in their keeping in the library. At the last meeting that I went to, um, they really seemed to be going in the right direction of making sure that the people who had problems with it felt heard, but also staying vigilant in deciding to keep the book on the shelves. Because what the opponents are saying is that they want to have it in its own little section of the library, probably with some other books, that you need to show some form of identification to show that you are 18 or up. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, that's pretty ridiculous for a library. Okay, so... I'm hearing you say as long as it's in the the appropriate section, be it adults or wherever, um, you're okay with it being on the shelf. I'm I'm okay with anything being on the shelf. I think. And that's and that's. Um, it sounds like that's what the the library's coming down on. Yeah. Um, do you see this as a freedom of speech issue, or uh, to be honest, I had a hard time kind of categorizing it. I, I said freedom. Uh, but not necessarily freedom of speech. What do you think about that? Well, in this case, see, that's that's a little tough because freedom of speech is when something is being censored by the government because yeah. um, its content is unfavorable to what the government wants. And I'm not sure if this situation is as much the government trying to crack down on our Garfield County libraries as much as it's just like certain concerned parents. Uh, so I wouldn't say that this is a freedom of speech issue. If Garfield County does get more involved and starts taking a side, maybe it really depends on what Garfield County as a governmental unit decides to do. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I, and I think it's a, again, it's a nuance that perhaps a lot of our citizens don't quite, um, take the time to appreciate the difference between that freedom of speech and the freedom that uh, we're trying to allow for our, our kids and, and um, library users. Um, well, cool. Any other thoughts on that? I was going to migrate to the next question, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that this attack is really like people parenting children they don't have a right to parent because like this isn't affecting anyone who's over 18 it's only affecting people like me and people younger than me and people a little bit older than me and i feel that that is really unfair as a member of our town to decide that you know what's best for a child who you don't care about and who you'll never meet hmm. uh, yeah you mentioned that in your editorial mm -hmm. um and it makes me think of uh, uh, trying to play devil's advocate. There are rules, and I remember when I was mayor, we we changed the rules on how old you have to be to access nicotine. And I'm trying to draw line comparisons to that. I I personally think it's not the same issue. It's access to information as opposed to a toxic substance. 
that the FDA has unfortunately not really um, analyzed properly. But do you see any correlation there? or do you Not just- really. Because, like, the age requirement for nicotine is based off of science and mm-hmm. based off of, like how our government treats an adult and an adult is the kind of person who can like do those kinds of things to their body. And there, this book banning situation has nothing to do with science. It's not rooted in any like, well, it's rooted in a, in a feeling, a hope for well being, but it's a little bit misplaced if you ask me. Mm -hmm. And I think that these are different problems because, yeah, one is rooted in science and the other is rooted in opinion and a bit of religion. And I think that that's not right for people to push on random children. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Were you able to have any conversations with uh, when you went to the meeting? Did you have any discussions with anyone one on one that worth noting? I only was able to talk to people who kind of shared my stance on it, uh-huh. so I'm not sure. Like that kind yeah. woman who um, wrote a editorial letter to Soper Sun, we mm-hmm. had a nice discussion after the meeting. And Great. I had some short conversations with people, congratulating them for being cordial. I talked with the library board afterwards to try and, like, you know, motivate them through this time. They seemed to appreciate it, so yeah. I was happy about that. Uh, well, good. Well, again, I appreciate your efforts in trying to understand that issue. Um, and when I say that, I mean, I mean, you're clearly a pretty intelligent guy. But what I what I read from your column and, and understand about your attendance at the meeting is you wanted to understand their perspective. And yeah. that's really important. I, I when I was walking into the meeting, I definitely did not pick a side yet. I kind of thought that maybe they were in the kids section and maybe mm-hmm. they were there. And it was just a mistake on the library's part. And it was totally fine for the people in town to rise up because I'm a strong believer. And if there is something wrong with your community, you have to say something about it. So I was all for hearing these people's opinion. And I was quite disappointed that their stance was as weak as it was. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, anything else before we move on to topic two? I don't think so. Awesome. Um, we talked about vegetarianism and your opinions on the industrial meat in, uh, complex industry. Um, so tell me, explain your thoughts on the human consumption of meat because it sort of seemed like that's where we were. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm I'm categorizing this under the sustainability uh category. So correct me if you feel like it's a it's a different issue, but tell yeah, me your yeah. thoughts on No, um, I I myself am vegetarian. I've always been a vegetarian, born and raised vegetarian um, by my very nice vegetarian parents. (laughs) Um, And I, especially in recent years, I've had a lot less of a problem with people consuming meat. I think it's really like a personal decision and I'm not like grossed out or weirded out by people who eat meat because, you know, you're just making a choice for yourself the same way that like, I don't know, I choose to do the things that I enjoy. You enjoy eating meat. And I don't know, as long as that's safe for you and as long as you feel happy about that, I don't see a problem with it. The system's the problem. Aha. Well, um, (laughs) So, I'll differentiate that. I, I choose to buy meat. Does it matter what kind of meat I buy? Or, uh, well, you're you're your own person, 
And uh -huh. at the end of the day, I can't tell you what you can do. Uh -huh. So I don't spend much effort um, being upset about people purchasing meat because you're making your own decision. Okay, well, I guess, um, so I see what you're saying, is is you're not being judgmental of the person. Yeah. But you take issue with how that meat lands in the grocery store. Yes, it is. It's always the, most of the time, I'm not going to say always, because there's a couple key exceptions, but most of the time, the consumer is far less wrong than the corporation. Huh. Okay. Well, we're going to get into that in a second, but Woo. Um, <laughs> tell me... Give me the highlights of what you feel are are uh, where the injustice is with the, the industrial meat complex. Well, um, two years ago, I had the privilege of being forced to read an incredible book called Fast Food Nation. Right. And it's a lot about the ways that our society, like, manufactures, serves, and markets its fast food foods. And a lot of what that book ended up being about was the, just the atrocities that occur in the meat industry. In an effort to, like, cut costs and an effort to, I don't know, supply the ever-growing population, um, we have honestly downgraded to just terrible, terrible violations of these animals' rights and the way that they should be as creatures. We've treated them instead of meat as machines, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They've been turned from a living organism into a means to an end, which we may use and abuse to get the resource that we want out of it. So... We talked briefly. I mentioned that at one time I was a, a big game hunter... Um, do you think it's a matter of how we, we, we treat the animals, uh, or that's what I'm hearing from you. It's a matter of how we treat the animals, not necessarily the energy usage and the water usage and all that. It's just, it's just, all that is a massive problem too. But yes, the, the main thing that I take offense to is the way that we're treating these living creatures like they are no different than a steel mine or a nuclear power plant. Those were strange examples. <laughs> but um, just the way that we're treating them like something that we can get a resource from instead of something that deserves like a life and love and nutrients and nourishment and, you know, the things that it desires. Uh -huh. And so by that, if someone does, uh, I, I would call it sustenance hunting, where you're hunting for the purpose of putting food on your table um what are your thoughts on that as long as you've got your licenses you're doing it in a safe manner and you're not like poaching <laughs> it, like you're following the law while you're doing it no i don't think i have a problem with that okay so we just touched on this a second ago and i, I kind of wanted to take us uh take a little turn here and talk about where capitalism comes into that uh, and the reason I ask that is it's something that I've given a lot of thought to in the past is, um, the pursuit of a sustainable future mm -hmm. and is it compatible with capitalism or not? And I think one of those, um, critical 
threshold questions about capitalism is it depends upon the free flow of information. And if we don't have that, then capitalism isn't working the way it's supposed to. So do you think that uh, – what are your thoughts on how that free flow of information plays into consumers buying that meat? Hmm. I definitely think that we're dealing with a bit of a uneducated populace when it comes to meat. I'm blanking on the name, but there's an interesting um, theory about this where um, a society who chooses or is forced into not knowing something is much easier to control. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is exactly what Big Meat is doing. And I think that it's definitely a, a terrible, terrible thing that does... I mean... I really dislike capitalism as a whole, so you're not going to hear me singing its praises. But, yeah, it is not ethical the way that people are just so oblivious and uneducated about how their meat is sourced. And I don't think that that's always a problem with the consumer. There's a point where the consumer chooses ignorance, and that's the other option. But I think that we really need to do a lot more work as a society, and our government needs to do a lot more work as a government to correctly educate people as to where their meat comes from and what is happening to these animals. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, I think that's why I'm tying these two together. Um, do you think do you think people would change their behavior if they knew? If, if everybody had read Fast Food Nation, would our eating habits and our consumption habits be different? It's it's hard to say because, like I said, um, I think that a lot of people would really choose to stay ignorant and decide that they enjoy the low price of meat. And also there's the massive issue of um, poverty in our country. And because of that, a lot of people don't have any other options than this cheap meat. They can't buy... Um, open field grazed meat that is sourced ethically because it is just so much more expensive in the way that we like subsidize our farmers and how much it costs to raise an animal in a non evil way that I think that it would definitely change some things. And I definitely think that it's worth pursuing, but there needs to be changes to the system. If we really want to see massive change and people, not purchasing products that are detrimental to these animals' health and to their health as well. Because as you may know, to make sure that these animals who are packed into little cages and in a completely dark room and eating this mix of, like, feces and other animals and, like, food scraps and, like, sometimes even medical scraps... We have to pump them full of antibiotics to the degree where we are slowly but surely creating new bacteria that are resistant to those antibiotics that will no doubt harm us in the future if we do not stop something about this soon. So, like I said earlier, I think it's the problem with the system, not the consumer as much. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I think that's that's my point. If there isn't accurate information, how can the consumer know what they're really buying or what they're not buying? Of course. Buying? 
and therefore, is it really a free market or is it not? Yeah. Um, how do you do? You ever talk about this topic with your your uh, fellow students and friends? No, not really. Um, <laughs> I'm not that intellectual. I don't have many intellectual conversations out of classes, and this doesn't come up in classes all that much. But um, I think that a lot of young people share my sentiment of mm-hmm. that. A lot of young people are dissatisfied with the quote-unquote system in general, the way that our government is run, the way that things are intentionally kept from us, the way that we are taught to be a subservient population and taught to, I don't know, just accept what's happening instead of working for change. Um, And I think that this meat problem is just a byproduct, just a little bit of the overarching issue of the way that our government works in America today. Hmm. So so let me drill down on that. It sounds like there's there's some co-ownership of the issue there. Do you put most of the blame on the industry itself or the government as the watchdog? Well... The government's allowing it, and that's deplorable, but the industry's doing it. So I think that both parts are pretty are pretty at fault in the situation, but um, I think the industry is definitely where most of the blame lies. But that same industry is subsidized and heavily rewarded for keeping the system in the way that it is by said government. So both are pretty equal in their contribution to the problem mm-hmm. and i heard you say that the government is involved in two different ways it it funds it obviously because it um, for whatever reason the government wants more of that meat out on the shelves mm-hmm. and two it may look it either may not pursue certain policies and regulations or it may look the other way when those policies and regulations are resulting in um poor health mm-hmm. okay um and do you think that's a common – you mentioned your friends, you know, don't necessarily trust the government. Would I know you said you don't talk to them much about it, but if you had to guess, would your friends pin it on the, the industry or, or government? Well, it's hard to tell because I think that – that I think that a lot of my friends most likely have more issues with the government as a whole and, like – you're you're speaking on just the issue of the meat industry, correct? Well, I'm trying to I'm trying to draw out maybe more of a trend in your generation as well. I think that my generation as a whole sees the the government and the yeah, the government. I think my my generation sees the government as the source of a lot of the problems in the world today. The people in power in the government and the way that the government functions um, are a pretty root cause of bo- of most of the Gen Z and millennial issues that we face. The reason I was kind of drilling down into this is I, I always love the question, if you had a magic wand, what would you do? And so I'm couching this question under the, the guise of sustainability and We've touched on how capitalism impacts this. We've touched on how the government plays a role in in this. Um, have you given much thought to, if you were king for the day, um, what you would do? 
Well, like most issues today, um, this can't be solved in one sitting. This can't be solved with one action. It has to be a buildup of actions. We can't just cut all funding to the meat industry and call it a day. That would cause more problems than it would solve. We need to break the system down and recreate it in a way that is sustainable and safe for the animals and for the people who consume those animals. Mm -hmm. I used to think that uh, if we could truly have that free flow of information and everybody knew exactly what went into putting this pound of ground beef uh, in your refrigerator that people would make good choices. But as we've seen in the political realm, um, truth doesn't always necessarily um, illuminate good decisions. Nope. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a break for a second here. It is 428. You're listening to the Meet in the Middle show on KDNK, Community Access Radio. I'm the host, Dan Richardson, and my guest is Gus Richardson. No relation. Today's show is Freedom, Sustainability, Identity, and Civility Through the Eyes of a Thoughtful High School Student. I also didn't mention in my introduction that um, Gus is also part of the Youth Journalism Program with Soper Sun. Did I say that correctly? Yes. So what does that entail? Um, I, it's like an internship, but the way that I do it, it's a lot more like my job. Because um, for every story I publish and for every photo I submit that gets put into the paper, I get paid a stipend that's pretty nice for the kind of hours that I put into it. Okay. And if I do it correctly, I can use it the same way how a teenager would, like working at the Walmart. And it's a lot more, it's a lot easier for my like busy schedule to fit in. Uh-huh. And it's a lot more enriching and fun for me because I get to write for it and I get to talk about issues in the community and I get to talk to interesting people. Uh-huh. And And all of that is really fun to do as a job. That's great. Um, Well, good on you for doing it, and thank you. Uh, And thanks to the Soper's Sun for allowing that opportunity. Um, Okay, moving down the list. Uh, We've covered freedom and sustainability, a couple of easy topics. We'll move on to the next one. Um, Next one I I categorized as identity. And the more I lean into this topic, and I would say, the topic of identity, the bigger the issue becomes, in my opinion. I, I think there's there's a lot more to what's going on in society right now than I than I originally understood. Um, there's just a lot to unpack. Um, you, when you and I spoke, you talked about you used the term weaponization of interests, which I hadn't heard that term before, and you used it to describe when people use labels like woke, emo, geek, stoner, and others. Um, so first, if, if you wouldn't mind, just cause I didn't, I had never heard of emo, um, and I would love to hear your opinion of woke. Can you give some definitions of those terms first? Sure. Um, I wrote a paper recently about the term emo. Um, so the way that people of my generation and the generation before mine, and I think a couple of the generation after mine use the term emo is when we're talking about like a sad person, somebody who is suicidal, maybe somebody suffering from depression, somebody who dresses in an all black. It's very vague what exactly emo means, but it's always used in a derogatory context. And emo is a genre of music that 
it's definitely it stands for emotional and it definitely has aspects of this culture it has aspects of like sadness but it's really more about being in touch with your emotions and feeling able to talk about them that's a lot of what the emo subculture is about and what this emo label does is it dissuades people from getting interested in the genre and it dissuades people from using it to describe someone in a favorable light and for woke the way that i feel about woke um it's it's just a put down word used for things that you deem are either too complex or too niche or too like things that you don't agree with. It's only used by one group, the the right, but um it's it's used by those people to describe things that they think is quote unquote too liberal, is quote unquote too like snowflake snowflakes another one that we can mm-hmm. talk about too <laughs> there's a lot we we weaponize a lot of words based off of the way that people f- strongly feel about things people's interests like to touch on geek and stoner um we call people who it really enjoy you know smoking that weed a stoner and that's really unfair because it paints these people who are using something for one reason or another maybe it helps with their anxiety maybe it like allows them to de-stress in a certain way and we really like weaponize their usage of this medicinal thing and there's no word for that like about alcohol except for like well that's unfair there's no word for that for like somebody who enjoys cigarettes I can't think of a word off the top of my head. Maybe there is one that the audience is screaming at home. Um, But I don't think that there is a word that weaponizes a cigarette user. And cigarettes don't give you any, like, positive benefits. And I think that calling somebody a stoner is really unfair to the, you know, the way that they're using the substance that isn't necessarily unsafe. So is it fair for me to... Or... Is it a weaponization of labels? Is, so I, I'm trying to understand this weaponization of interests. Is it synonymous with labels? Or yeah, yeah, labels, okay. labels. Putting labels on things that you don't understand, don't like, or want to make fun of. So what do you think is the root of that? Um, well, people are scared of things that they don't understand. They see something that is different than that we're, than what they are normal to and as i was watch, i was listening to a really great um video essay about the way that we display characters and the way that we see other people and this this comes from an evolutionary mindset where we would want to engage with and want to find people that were like us and so then we could, like, bounce ideas off each other and, sh- and share in our opinions and things like that. And it's something where it's dehumanizing people as we see that somebody is a person, but a person who does not share much in common with us. And our first thought from our, like, lizard brains, from our time as monkeys to be that person is not a person. That's that's weird. That's that's emo. That's woke. That's cringe. 
All of these things are used when we don't understand something, and so we decide that we must hate it because of that. Hmm. So I'll play devil's advocate a little bit and say, isn't there some value in labels? And I'll use this show as an example. Um, I'm often seeking out differing opinions, and so sometimes it's useful for me to label someone as a conservative or a liberal or an environmentalist because it quickly gets us to the point where, okay, I generally understand your worldview. So where's that line? I think that the line is just where whenever you are trying to hurt somebody with something that you're calling them, that's when there's a problem with it. Mm -hmm. What you're talking about, I would call much more like titles. Like if somebody is a conservative and you're not like bullying them for being a conservative, you're just quickly using a word inside of our English system that describes quickly what some of their ideas might be and their political affiliation. And I think that labels like that are just fine, if not useful. But it's when we get into the sphere of attempting to hurt people and attempting to isolate people by calling them these words. Hence your term weaponization. And that's where that line yes. gets drawn. That makes sense. Um, what are, what are some of the impacts? Like what you obviously chose this topic because it, it, it's unsettling to you and you, and you obviously see examples of it in school. Can you give me some insight of what you see and how that's impacting people? Um, if I understand your question correctly, you're asking for some like general examples of the kind of things that I hear in my day to day. Yeah. Some context. I'm curious at, uh, you you go to Roaring Fork high school is this a big problem at Roaring Fork? Is it just a handful of people? I think it's kind of a problem anywhere where uh -huh. teenagers are around or people who aren't very intelligent are around because teenagers aren't very intelligent. That's, it's a bit of a hot take, but I stand by it. They're still learning how to be people. Their brains are growing, so they don't know yet like necessarily what is good and what is something that a person should be doing. But something, something that I see a lot at the high school is um, gay, calling things gay. Um, if you like don't like them or if you disagree with them or if you think that they're lame and that's a clear weaponization of a term because that's saying that to be homosexual is to be the other to be something undesirable and I take a lot of offense with that and so going back to my previous point maybe there's a there's a time and a place to use the word gay if someone is saying hey I, I'm I'm gay and but as soon as it becomes a derogatory term meant to bully someone, yeah, that's gay, gay is a helpful term. It's like it lets you know somebody's sexuality. That's an important thing to know. But the instant that we start using it for anything other than identifying by their, someone by their sexuality, um, it's a problem. And I'm sure it's a little bit hard to ask you to put this in context because you're a junior in high school and maybe maybe you weren't paying attention in middle school like like I certainly wouldn't have been but do you see things getting worse getting better uh with this issue I think that there is a lot more love and compassion than maybe has been seen in like the 2000s or the 90s in terms of like trying to understand people but yeah there's always going to be people who decide to be jerks and who decide to like put people down for their decisions and as we can see in situations like um 
the the situation going down in Florida right now with the all of the banning of LGBTQ media and the way that they're cracking down on schools, we can see that that hate for what someone perceives as the other is still very alive and well, mm-hmm. sadly. You think it's possible that we have sort of competing identity crises happening with that, such that different underrepresented groups are holding resentment towards the groups getting the most attention? Yeah, yes. We've seen this for years um, with, uh, like, for example, um, misogyny? Is that a good example? Because, like, as the women independence movement continued to rise and has um, people began to see women as much more equals than they had been seen in the past. I think that a lot of our ideas, it's not the best example because America is rooted in a lot of misogyny and rooted in a lot of women being less than. So let me, let me change over to possibly the more topical um, LGBTQ issues again, as we can see in a lot of people of older generations like the baby boomers um, saying that people didn't used to be gay in the past and that why is everybody got to be gay now? We can see through that that people who are now being finally acknowledged because there's always been gay people. There's been just as many gay people as ever. It's just people feel more like they can talk about it and have conversations about it now. Um we can see through that that there's people who are frustrated that these gay people are, um, I don't know, confident in themselves and are seeing that as like an attack on their straightness, that that is somehow against them, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that's certainly possible. I also wonder if, I mean... I feel as if there's been almost a rebellion against the reality that racism exists. Oh, for real, yeah. And I wonder if some of that rebellion, obviously, uh, it's not wholeheartedly, but it's perhaps other individuals who are impoverished or underrepresented in one degree or another are upset because they're not getting the support that blacks are because there's this awareness around racism. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, and, and I think the same thing could, could be true for the LGBTQ community. Yeah, because as we saw in a lot of the um, MAGA movement, the Make America Great Again movement, a lot of those people were um, not of the highest social class um, in the South, which is a, just a whole different thing. And we saw that they saw somebody who they felt really represented them and that they allowed themselves to be taken into a cult of personality due to that. And I think that that's in no small part due to the fact that we are illuminating the lives of the underrepresented and that some groups, because of that, will innately feel as though they are being left at the wayside. And the problems of poverty in this country and the problems of less obvious um, issues with fairness in our country definitely deserve to be acknowledged, but not by 
hate and not by taking that acknowledgement away from other groups because you feel that you deserve it more. So just to wrap up this question, maybe one more question. And I, I, I love trying to, well, I love asking you to sort of look into your, your fellow students' uh, thoughts to understand them. Do you see, do you see your generation adding more labels or subtracting labels as time evolves? It is unclear. I've talked with my father a lot about this, how when he was in his 20s, Mm -hmm. he believed that Gen X was really going to make the country what it needed to be. It had all these people who had a lot of love for their fellow person and were compassionate and intelligent and more educated than their, their parents and their grandparents. And they thought that once all the old people died, there would be just the country would go into this great new place for the Gen Xers. But he has been disappointed in the fact that that has not been the case, that those well, that once the old people of his generation died, his generation <laughs> replaced those old people and became the problem again. So I don't know. I'm, I'm ambitious and hopeful for the future, but I feel as though we have a track record of feeling as though we will be the hot new thing that makes we as in the new generation feeling that we will be the hot new thing that makes the country the way that it's always meant to be and raises equality and makes everything right. And it has really yet to happen in the way that people want it to, Mm -hmm. because there's been change and there's been improvements over the years. I'm not going to discount that, but things have never gotten to the state that we want them to. Sure. In my experience, Change requires many things, including inspiration and influence, and oftentimes it's hard to have that balance at any given time in your life, right? Mm -hmm. You may not have so much influence as a junior, but you've got a lot of inspiration, and by the time you're old like me, I may have influence, but I'm not that inspired youngster I once was. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's tough. Um, Well, just tying it back to that earlier issue I think how you approached the book banning issue, I would I would say that you approached it with curiosity. You went to the meeting. You said, I want to learn what these people have to say. Um, I'd like to think that that's a way to address this issue with weaponization of labels. If if we are curious about our, our co-inhabitants on this earth, we will learn a little bit more and um, understand a person's value and look beyond that label. Um, I'll get off my soapbox and move on to that fourth <laughs> question, um, which which to me felt fell under the uh, the guise of civility. Uh, you mentioned that you've noticed a lot of hate graffiti pop up in several places around school. Um, give me an example of hate graffiti and, and why it bothers you. Um, so we've had so many swastikas in the bathrooms recently. Wow. What do you um, say, recently, like this school year, last school year? Yeah. Like... I saw one a day or two ago. Um, th- the bathrooms are closed all the time. Be- like, huh. every week or so, it cycles through. Like, we have a week of having this bathroom, and then it's closed again because they have to clean off the walls. Wow. It's terrible. Okay. So, uh, other examples, or is that the main one? That's the main one. I mean... We have some Hispanic kids that use the N-word a bit too much, but I don't think that they're trying to be hateful out of it. I think that they're going to get into society and meet some black people and realize that that's not right, and I hope that it goes for them in a positive manner. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, the real hate problem that I see at the school is the mass amounts of swastikas. Okay. Yeah, may- maybe we'll use those two examples to compare and contrast, but let's talk about the swastika. Um, why does it bother you? Um, whoa. <laughs> uh, the swastika bothers me because, um, I don't know. It it's used. It was used by a group of objectively evil people to kill and maim and um, discriminate against a group of people that had done nothing wrong. Um, a group of people that I have many friends that identify with: um, the queer community, the disabled community, the Jewish community. All of those were targeted by the swastika, and it was used by a symbol by these horrible, horrible people to um, to serve as their insignia as they did all these awful things. Wow. Um, what an articulate uh, thought on uh, why it bothers you. So uh, obviously I wanted to uh, illuminate that, but you did a great job, so thank you. Um, what I'm hearing in that is, or, or I, I guess... Is it fair for me to assume that you think that whoever drew that swastika is trying to invoke that emotion or perhaps support that movement, which obviously is uh, your labeling is hateful? I I hope so much that this is just some kid being edgy mm-hmm. that like he he doesn't understand. Like most of it's in the boys' bathroom. I don't know if it's happening in the girls', but um, I'm hoping that he just doesn't understand the impact of what he's doing and he's just trying to be an edgelord um but if it really is a problem of hate that's just a whole nother issue in a way that i never thought that a teenager growing up in the roaring fork valley of carbondale colorado well that was a that was a poor sentence a teenager growing up in carbondale colorado would feel towards their fellow student Mm -hmm. but i think uh You've seen it in Roaring Fork High School, but certainly we've seen examples of other similar gestures around the country, whether it's a swastika or all kinds of things. Um, So to dive a little deeper there, do you think that as a society or maybe your community in the Roaring Fork High School, are we getting angrier or are our values changing? Well... People are pretty angry these days. We saw this in the raid on the Capitol and, like I said earlier, Florida. Um, I think that, as we can see with the war of Russia and Ukraine to move out of the U.S. for a moment, we're definitely um, at a pretty high point of hate in the modern day. And whether that's spurned by people, I think a lot of it is... Honestly, the anonymity afforded to people by um, the usage of social media and the internet, um, and then them taking those that anonymity and deciding that they have it in the real world as well, is a lot of this issue, at least in America. I can't say much for other countries. But yeah, we have a lot of hate and a lot of bigotry and a lot of anger just channeled into our American society these days, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Well, the reason I ask about the anger versus values, um, again, as 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 time has progressed over the last f- 
five or six years, I assumed that it was that anger. People were frustrated. Uh, what I noticed after COVID was there was, uh, it seemed like it was pretty universal that none of us had the same capacity to cope with challenges as we did before COVID. Um, it taxed all of us to one degree or another. It was a mass trauma that we all induced, and that cannot be discounted. Yeah. And I perhaps was naively optimistic that that was the the root of this anger. But I'm also seeing a shift in values as well, that it's now acceptable to um, harshly judge or bully someone who thinks differently. And now we're kind of going back to that other issue that mm -hmm. it's okay to label someone uh, in a derogatory way as long as you can... Uh, defend the fact that they're they're different and their ideals falls outside of you do you see that or or is it is it more of an anger thing from your perspective i think that maybe i think that maybe they've mixed together and yes there's been some changes in values like i said earlier um social media and the way they interact with the internet and i think some of the isolationism and the loss of our ability to feel like we're all in this together like we're a group that came from covid um, has really mixed together into an evil little cocktail where we're all now thinking, okay, but how can this help me? How can I benefit from this situation? And seeing that things that we don't disagree with aren't something that should be talked about and something that should be um, loved, maybe, even, because discourse is important. That's why you have this show, I'm assuming. <laughs> um, but instead that if somebody does not share our beliefs, that we must attack and berate them for our beliefs are the only right, the only holy, the only correct option, and that all others must, by that definition, be wrong or a sin or evil or weird or cringe. Okay. We are getting close to the top of the hour, so I wanted to end with uh, a couple of broader questions. Um, what, so I'm, I'm 50. You're a lot younger than that. What would a life... Well, first, let me ask, what gives you hope? Um, well, I can get pretty nihilistic at times, uh -huh. but um, what really gives me hope today is the... It's like the little things that I see. For example, um, a couple days ago, I was playing with the pep band at a soccer game. And um, I got to see a student that I don't often interact with too much. He plays the bass drum, um, interact with his father. And just like the loving interaction between those two parties, like he, his father wanted to see the mallet that he was using to hit the bass drum. And he handed it over to him and he like took a look at her twice and then handed it back. And, like, they were smiling at each other, and there was just so much love in that interaction. And seeing that really inspired me and gave, left me with a lot of opti optimistic hope for how we can move forwards. Because if that, if that, like, little interaction between that father and son can be filled with so much love and filled with so much gentle compassion then maybe we can bring that into the way that we do our everyday lives and the way that we talk to each other and the way that we treat each other. Beautiful. Um, well, Gus, you seem like a mover and a shaker. So my last question is, 
What would a life well lived look like to you when you're an old man in his fifties like me? You're not that old. <laughs> you're you're very you look very young, sir. <laughs> but um I think that a life well lived would be one where I can look back at the things that I've done and be proud of myself and be proud of what I've brought into this world, whether that's like a child that I see doing incredible things or a stage play or a, a really amazing piece that I wrote. And I think that as long as I can feel like I did something that I'm proud of and I live my life in a way that I can look back on and be happy about and feel good about and if I tried to treat others with compassion, but also treat myself with compassion, I think that those were all things that would make me feel on my deathbed like I had really made it work, like I had found the point of life and completed it. Wow. You're a remarkable individual, Gus. Thanks. I think you have a, a heightened degree of self-awareness and intellectual curiosity, and I look forward to see how the future unfolds for you. I look forwards to it, too. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I know we touched on a lot of different subjects, but I just thought it would be fascinating to hear your thoughts on these different subjects, especially from someone who is as curious, courageous, and, and humble as yourself. Um, so thank you, Gus Richardson, No Relations, for joining me today. It was an honor. Today's show was freedom, sustainability, identity, and civility through the eyes of a thoughtful high school student. I'm Dan Richardson. Thank you for listening to KDNK and Meet in the Middle Show. We'll be back in a month. Thanks. <laughs>